welcome to the Brodacious Book Club. The podcast where we host a book club. And I haven't read the book. I'm your host, Aaron Rockford, and with me is my good, good bro, the mustachy bro with the mustachio, Matt Thomas. There it is. Very good. Thank you so much. (laughs) To our valued listeners, you might have noticed something different there in the intro. Very subtle, very subtle, but this week we have something special for you. Yes, you have not entered the Twilight Zone. This is, in fact, a special episode for our one-year anniversary. I like that we both did like a very bad woo there. Yeah, I know. At the same time, unplanned. Just yep. that's, This is what happens when you know each other for like, are we approaching 15 years? Yeah, I think we've passed 15 years now. Oh, geez. I know. Anyway. For this episode of the Brodacious Book Club, at least, and perhaps others in the future at some point, mm-hmm. I have not read this week's book. And in fact, my lovely co-host has. <laughs> I have. And it was fantastic. And it was enriching. And I enjoyed it so much. And yeah, we wanted to do something different, shake it up a bit. So I read a science fiction book, which I'll we'll get into that after we're done the introductions. Mm-hmm. But and yeah, I, I've, I've read it. I've made some notes. I have some points for analysis. It should be fun. should be fun. But I don't know if the rest of our usual intro holds (laughs) where I usually don't know anything about the books. Erin, I don't know if you know anything about the book this this week that I read. I do a little bit and we can can get into that once we say what it is maybe. Sure. Okay. All, All to say that our job here today is to help you, the listener, understand the often humorous nuances of books and stories without having to read them. Because you're busy and we get that. There it is. There it is. And uh, as usual, we'll be diving right into these novels. So spoiler alert, we'll be discussing all of the major plot points. We'll be providing analysis. So of course, that will include spoilers. And if you don't want spoilers, we absolutely encourage you to read the book beforehand and then listen to the summary, hear our thoughts. Of course, again, as always, this podcast is meant for entertainment purposes. It's a comedy podcast. (laughs) And we mean no disrespect to the books or the authors discussed and encourage reading the books for yourselves. That's just it. As our line goes, we are not professional critics, just two people who think we're funny. We're (laughs) not taking ourselves too seriously, just enjoying good book together. We don't take ourselves too seriously, and neither should you. That's it. That's it. Well said, Aaron. Well said. So, Matt, what are we reading today? So weird. So weird. So much pressure. I know. I am very happy, very pleased to announce that we're going to be going over iRobot, written by Isaac Asimov in the year. Well, I think that each chapter was actually written in a different year, but more or less between the years 1940 and 1956. Don't quote me on this, but (laughs) it's a very, very old novel, science fiction, kind of predicting what the world was going to look like into the information era from a post-World War II kind of Cold War mindset going into it. Mm -hmm. And because of that, because of when it was written, you, you see some really interesting, some funny, some heartwarming things that maybe you wouldn't expect like at one point one of the characters says to another character and yes I write for the intergalactic times if you give me the interview your words will be seen by three billion people <laughs> kind of funny right the, their predictions for the future and not not quite <laughs> and also of course the general premise here was that they thought that robotic technology 
technology was going to develop much more than it clearly has. Yes. <laughs> and so the book begins, rather, I should say the book covers the years between 1990 to 2057. So we're smack dab in the middle of that in our real timeline. <laughs> in, which again, makes this so interesting. One of the stories that we'll go over actually takes place in the year 2021. Kind of neat. Yeah. Oh, interesting. The novel is a, a science fiction uh, kind of anthology. And I call it a kind of anthology because each chapter is a different story that takes place within this world with a seemingly different set of characters for, for every story or every other story. They all kind of together tell the story of the development of the robotic positronic brain and the impacts that that has had on society, how humans have reacted to it, what the world looks like as a result. Mm-hmm. And it, it touches on a lot of in- interesting themes because of it, but we'll, we'll get to that when we get there. Sounds good. And I have, I have in fact seen the film iRobot, mm. which is my entire understanding of this story, right. is that film. And I, that, I probably watched it maybe a decade ago, so I don't have right. a strong memory of it. I obviously remember that it starred Will Smith. I think I have vague recollections of the fact that it's kind of a murder mystery. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I remember about it, too. It must have been 10 years for me as well. I, yeah. Apparently, the Will Smith movie is based on on the story of one of the chapters. Apparently, it's based on the chapter Lost Little Robot, loosely. Oh. And we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So you've given us a good understanding of what the setting is. Mm-hmm. Did you want to tell us about any of the major characters? Or is that kind of maybe a bit difficult given the spread of the story? <laughs> no, no, I can, I can tell you about a few of them right off the bat. So the the two main characters that are kind of in the present day of the story, which mm-hmm. the present day of the story is the year 2057. Our two main characters are Dr. Susan Calvin, who is, I, I suppose you could call her the protagonist, but again, being somewhat of an anthology, it's kind of different, difficult to have a, a single mm-hmm. protagonist, but Dr. Susan Calvin's a character who reoccurs throughout most of these stories and is also the narrator. She's also the one okay. who is uh, telling us these stories to a reporter who might be unnamed, might be not unnamed. Not important to know their name either way. Um, Fair enough. A reporter for the interplanetary time, which is in that circumstance where the reporter was saying, ah, you should give me this interview because then you're three billion people, yada, yada. Ah, yes. So those are the two characters that you should know about right at the get. The rest will all follow naturally as we go through the stories. There are a few characters who recur throughout the anthology, but mostly with every chapter, new characters are introduced and then disappear. But the main characters here in these stories are really the the robots and indeed the robotic positronic brain and how it reacts and develops. It's interesting because the, not to imply that the robots share a consciousness because they do not, but they are connected through what they are able to accomplish within the bounds of the three Mm. rules of robotics, which we will get to. That I remember. And other works of fiction like citing that. Yes, yes. It's that, that's another thing to mention right at the get. This novel was foundational for mm-hmm. uh, many science fiction works to come. But the development of the positronic brain and what the robots are capable of, are aware of, does develop almost the same way that a character mm-hmm. would develop throughout the chapters. So, neat. so yeah, it, it's really interesting in that way. And, and then perhaps as another note on the setting, and I'll expand on this as we go through, Dr. Susan Calvin is the head uh, robo-psychologist, actually. That is her position. 
position mm. at a company called United States Machines and Robotics. And that has kind of more or less has a monopoly on mm. the positronic brain in particular. Other companies can build robots and do, but they aren't nearly as advanced as the robots that are put out by US Robotics is what the company is called for short. And the reason why is because US Robotics has a lot of patents for the, the emotional currents in, in the in the brain, whereas other companies' robots are just basically. So the story begins with the reporter asking Dr. Susan Calvin to recant her lifetime working for the company. Indeed, she tells us stories that kind of go over her experience with positronic robots over time, sizing how she considers them to be better than humans. In many cases, she, she prefers them to the humans. Mm. And I, I apologize, I'm already letting it get away from me and kind of diving into the beginning of the book. So I don't know if you had any more questions. <laughs> well, the other question I think we typically ask is about arcs. Like, are there any particular arcs or challenges to be overcome? Mm, quite a few, quite a few. Mm -hmm. I think just the general story arc that we see is, it's not quite a, oh, I guess in a way it could be seen as this. Perhaps uh, I, I'm curious to hear what any of our listeners think of my characterization of the story as almost a coming of age story, but not a coming of age for uh, Dr. Susan Calvin or for U.S. Robotics or for any of our other characters that are included in the anthology. More coming of age for the positronic brain, for the, the robots as a whole, as I say, developing as a character and seeing what they are from the first chapter versus the, the final chapter and what they've accomplished. And moreover, the author, I found, it's heavy laden with analogy and metaphor, comparing the robots and their, it's plain to see it's low-hanging fruit, but comparing them and their relative humanity to ours, right? What, what exactly makes a robot human? Where do those lines begin to blur? If a human's brain activity is replicated in silicone, then is the silicone effectively that human? It grapples with some issues along those lines. I wouldn't really call that an arc, but it's an important theme to be aware of. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really interested to see how that develops, especially for such like an older work. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like and I'm not I'm not by any means an expert on the sort of trends of science fiction, but it seems to me that the question of like how human are robots is something that we've kind of come in and out of being as interested in. Mm -hmm. Like the example that pops to mind is of the original Westworld movie and the mm -hmm. West World TV show, uh, which I have not watched all of. Mm -hmm. I've only seen the first season of it. But just the way that they handle the robots and like what it would mean for, you know, the robots to become independent of their programming in vastly mm. different ways. Indeed. Well, it's it's interesting that you should compare it to that to uh, to Westworld. In some of the, without giving too much away for your own personal sake <laughs> and for the sake of our, of our listeners, the show Westworld and the book iRobot do in fact touch on similar themes in that way some of the some of the later seasons especially but indeed i i suppose with that if there are no no further questions i'm happy to dive in yeah let's do it shouldn't have clapped there uh. no i mean hey it's uh, it is what it is our story begins as i mentioned in the year 2057 and it begins with a young upstart reporter who is writing for the interplanetary times looking to interview dr susan calvin who is one of the most famous uh, and brilliant minds of the 21st century who played a very large 
large role in the development of the robotic positronic brain, which is responsible for many of the leaps and bounds that human society has made up until this point. Dr. Susan Calvin has a reputation for being cold and almost robotic herself. And so our interviewer is a little bit nervous, but eventually he gets the interview and they sit down. She tells a series of stories that explain everything that she's experienced, as I said, from 1996, from her first kind of experiences with robots and her first kind of anecdotes about society as a whole as it pertains to robotics versus the the present day. Mm -hmm. So the introduction is rather short. It's only about five pages and it's setting the scene in that way. And then you into her first story, which she uses to illustrate kind of society's general attitudes towards robots in the beginning. So the, our first anthology begins in 1996. It's not specified where, but it's assumed somewhere in the continental United States. And we get more more description about the, the setting as a whole later on. And it's a small family of three, unrelated to any of the characters introduced thus far. There is a father, George. There is a mother, Grace. And there is a daughter, Gloria who is relatively young. I think she was somewhere around eight years old. And she has a pet robot, much in the way that a child today would have a pet dog. And this robot's name is Robbie. Is it like a literal, like humanoid robot? Not quite. It's the robots in iRobot at this stage do not necessarily take a humanoid. Okay. And in the case of Robbie, Robbie is a somewhat small-ish, you know, I I suppose that you'd be somewhere around the the size of of a small human. Very, very clunky, very, very heavy, and not nonverbal. This is an early robot that not speak. It can understand. It can communicate in other ways. And it does have the positronic brain, so it's capable of some intelligence, mm-hmm. but indeed nonverbal. It's like a Wally type robot. Exactly. It, that that's exactly how I pictured it. <laughs> okay. anyway. Um, like literally exactly. So thank you for also being on that same way. Like, in any case, Robbie is a nursemaid by profession. His job is to take care of Gloria and they are the best of friends. They play, he gives her piggyback rides. He, you know, runs around with her in the garden and, and life is good until Gloria's mother starts to have some concerns. Some of the neighbors in the neighborhood are not so comfortable. They, they talk about it. They gossip. You know what life was like in the forties and fifties. And, and that that's another kind of interesting slice of life mm-hmm. element to it as well. I don't know if you've watched WandaVision recently, but... I did. I, I feel like the first episode that kind of takes place in the 50s-ish kind of gives you a slice of nostalgia in the same way that this entire novel gives you a slice of nostalgia. It's interesting, like, Asimov was writing about the future, but now it now it reads as like an alternate history. <laughs> Indeed, exactly. It's, it's so interesting in that way. You really, as you said, we're smack dab in the middle of, of when the the story's supposed to be taking place, right? So it's really cool to kind of look back and see how people would, you know, I feel like it reads the same way as people in the 50s and 40s saying that, ah, we're going to have flying cars and everyone's going to have a personal jetpack by the year 1977, you know? (laughs) So Mrs. Weston begins to have some concerns over Robbie, over allowing her daughter to be taken care of by this non-human thing. And it's, it's implied that many of her concerns come from public pressure, that a lot of the people in the neighborhood think that that's not something that should be done to have a robot take care of a child. And indeed, she worries about what might happen if Robbie should go berserk, I say in finger quotes. Mr. Weston, George, getting up from his couch, reading his newspaper, again, all very 1950s on a Sunday, unbuttoned shirt, <laughs> decides that that would be ridiculous. Robot would be inoperable before they could cause harm to any human because of the first rule of robotics, which is that no robot may harm a human being or through inaction, allow a human to come to harm. This is the first time we're introduced 
introduced to the laws of robotics. And these play a really key role in almost all of the other anthologies. So I'll, I'll loop back to that once we get there to discuss. So M- Mr. Weston provides that as the, the counterpoint to Mrs. Weston's fears. She is uh, tempered by that in the interim and life goes on. However, Mrs. Weston eventually wears Mr. Weston down through constant, oh, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. You know, people are less and less accepting of robots these days. Uh, we can't have them. It, again, it's it's quite clear some of the allegories that they're they're making and gets clearer later on. In fact, I, I made a note of this. When Mr. Weston is explaining the first law to Mrs. Weston, he makes a point of noting that the, the first law is the reason why they are, quote, slavish. Um, so mm-hmm. again, sign of the times, the very backward, backward. In any case, Mrs. Weston eventually wears Mr. Weston down and he agrees to get rid of the robot, replace it with a dog and just tell Gloria that Robbie left. Uh, People saw him leaving and he's never coming back. Gloria is obviously very upset, kind of wants nothing to do with the dog, becomes depressed. Mrs. Weston refuses to give in to this, partially because she doesn't want the robot back and partially because she doesn't want to admit that she was wrong. Eventually, she decides that what Gloria needs is something to cheer her up, so we're going to take her to New York City. We're going to move to New York. Once they're there, Mr. Weston organizes a tour of one of the factories of U.S. robotics so that Gloria can see and learn the distinction between robot and human, between a natural, quote, conscious <laughs> and uh, an artificial, quote, conscious. Mm-hmm. So they go and they're enjoying their tour. However, what Gloria does not know, and the reader does not know at this point, is that he has placed Robbie in the factory somehow through his connections. He, he's. It's implied that he's a big powerful businessman when Gloria sees Robbie working on an operations floor that is entirely made up of robots no humans at all she gets overexcited jumps over the the tour railing that she was on and then when she begins to go running to him almost gets crushed by a moving vehicle that's moving on the floor any human does not have the reaction time to save her however in that instant Robbie which hears her cry out rushes over and immediately saves her seeing this Mrs. Weston is now a Agreeing to let Robbie stay with them, Gloria is happy, and and that's the end of the first anthology. Oh, that's such a lovely story, isn't it? Isn't it? It really does kind of suck you in with a lovely bit of nostalgia, not unlike first episode of Wanda. Yeah, a lovely bit of nostalgia with a happy ending. Doctor Calvin continues at the end of this anthology to explain that once talking robots were invented, which happens shortly thereafter, they were largely banned from Earth except for scientific research purposes and used primarily in space exploration and space operations like mining on asteroids and establishing colonies, etc. People didn't want their robots talking back to them potentially or just talking in general. Exactly, exactly. For the same prejudices that led to the Robbie incident, which is really, I think, the main point of this story, just demonstrating the general prejudice and anti-robot sentiment that's building up Mm -hmm. on Earth, even from as early as 1996. So then, after that story, the reporter asks for more, and so she goes into the second anthology, which is called Runaround, the third chapter, technically, where we have a new host of characters. The story of the hot-headed redhead Mike Donovan and the perhaps wiser, perhaps know-it-all, perhaps smarty-pants Gregory Powell, who are both research scientists working for U.S. robotics who are trying to start up space stations on Mercury. And they send an advanced robot, Speedy, out to retrieve some of a resource called Selenium to power their base. However, when 
Speedy doesn't return, they realize that something is quite critically wrong, because why wouldn't he return? There are three laws of robotics. And in this particular scenario, because they are on Mercury, and they need this resource to cool the little space station that they are in working, if they don't get it, they will die, they will essentially cook to death. So they've only got about six hours or so speedy isn't coming back, they don't really understand why and they have to solve this problem or else they will die and the mission will fail. So this is kind of the start in the novel of these anthologies where you have a problem with the way that a robot is functioning. And given the three laws of robotics, our characters in these anthologies try to deduce the reasons why Mm -hmm. and solve the problem. And that I think is uh, part of the fun of this novel. If you know the three laws of robotics, you yourself can begin deducing why and trying to figure out what their reasoning is and their logic is that is preventing them from fulfilling their function. Oh, that's cool. It's very cool. It's really, really fun. I I noticed that after this chapter, when we get into the next chapter, it's a similar situation where their uh, robot is not functioning properly and you are already acquainted with all three laws of robotics. And so you begin to start deducing why. And as well in in this situation, as well as in other anthologies, I got a very much the same vibe of the one that that we read, uh, the the cave diving. uh, The Luminous Dead. The Luminous Dead. Oh, yes. Right. There was a sense of urgency and, and fear. Danger. And and danger, exactly. Moving right along, when Speedy doesn't return, they set out to find him. And they eventually find that he is caught in a loop of seemingly drunkenness. He's running around, hence the name of the chapter, in a crazed loop due to the second and third laws of robotics, which are eventually deduced. He's running around in a circle around the, the pool of this resource that they need, speaking in gibberish. So Mike and Donovan discuss several possibilities with increasing a sense of urgency as the heat of Mercury is beginning to disintegrate their suits that they're out there chasing him in. So they take some shelter and they discuss the laws of robotics. And that's when we learn that in addition to the first law, which I will recap, no robot may harm a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. The second law states that a robot must obey humans except for when it would conflict with the first law. And the third law states that a robot must protect its own existence as long as its actions do not conflict with the first two laws. Mm. So you you see there's a hierarchy here, the first law being the most important, then the second third. Mm-hmm. And understanding how that works is key to understanding how robots interact, which Dr. Calvin mm-hmm. discusses at length being a robo-psychologist. So they, they deduce that the reason for Speedy's drunkenness is that there is conflict between the last two laws. There is some unforeseen danger near the selenium pool, they realize, and so Speedy is pushed away from the danger by the third law, and then pushed towards the danger by the second law. They have to obey their humans and get this resource, but it's a danger to the robots themselves. Mm-hmm. And so this dissonance creates this confusion and leads to the life-threatening situation that they're in. And so they conclude that the only option is for Powell, the smarty pants, to put himself in danger, thus allowing the first law to take precedence and uh, knock Speedy out. of. So this works, but nearly costs Powell his life because he's exposed to radiation on Mercury. O- only briefly, but they... <laughs> only a little bit of radiation. Only a little bit of, yeah, Mercury, radiation, all is well. They get their selenium 
they report back, they're not going to get fired and they're not going to die. Great. End of chapter. <laughs> Good. Yes, that's, that's all you want in life, right? And then uh, Dr. Calvin seamlessly in the next chapter moves on to the next story, which is called Reason, which also centers on Donovan and Powell, who are at a different space station observing energy beams being sent to various planets. And here's where some of the world building comes in, where it explains that part of what this network of space mm-hmm. stations is for is for using solar energy, uh, collecting solar energy, and then the space station beams that energy to Earth and the other planets in the systems uh, that need it. They were very optimistic about our capabilities. <laughs> there were. It's, it's yeah, that, that's what I mean. You know, it's very it's <laughs> funny. And it's, I, I read that and I was like, huh, that's an interesting idea. You know, I have no idea if the science there, you know. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> also no no <laughs> even just the the amount to which it's like oh they're using solar power like so yeah. much focus on like this renewable energy whereas we can't even get our like butts off the ground with renewable energy no kidding eh? literally literally can't even get our butts off the ground in this story but at this point they're they're beginning to colonize the solar system and you know when is the last time that we did anything big in space right but uh, yeah i mean they sent that thing to mars they did send that thing to mars and china and russia have just uh, announced that they're going to try to build, I think, a lunar polar space station together. Oh, which is pretty great. Yeah, like a base on the moon. I guess things are happening, but that's besides the point. We're much further <laughs> behind than than Asimov would suggest. Yeah. <laughs> so, in any case, this a bit of a short one, but it's very interesting. The robot that coordinates all of the others. They, they're also testing a new type of robot called the, the QT model, which is apparently called Cutie. Naturally. And naturally, and their function was that they were designed designed to fill the executive role on these space stations. Mm. Usually now it's a large team of robots that all works under one or two human overseers. Mm-hmm. And US Robotics is looking at replacing those human overseers with another robot. Mm-hmm. So they develop uh, an executive robot that might be capable of doing something. And that's beauty. And remind me, what year is this? Or like what sort of generally? Yeah, we're sorry, we're, we're not given a specific year, but we can assume that at this point, we're somewhere around the 2010. Okay. Just based on how many years have passed in each story, I'm pretty sure that the next one is the one that takes place in 2021. Okay. So Cutie, once he is brought online and built and begins to be tested, begins to show signs of curiosity as to why he was created, how he was created, by whom, what his purpose was, which Donovan as somewhat alarming and sinister, whereas Powell says, you know, quit being a dope. This is just the interplay of the of the three laws. We just have to log this out. He's not trying to, you know, usurp or anything. Mm. Goes on to reveal that duty, who has been perfectly executing his duties of sending the sending the laser. Duty begins to associate the laser itself and the duties of sending that beam itself with his higher purpose, and begins referring to the laser as the master. Oh, it's a little bit concerning. Yeah. Indeed. A little bit alarming. Cutie begins to believe that he is superior to human beings, begins to refute that no human being could create me because I am a superior being to humans, and begins to instead assert that human beings were created to serve the purpose of the master, to send this this beam, you know? You expect me to believe that those little dots of light out there are other stars? You expect me to believe that there's other planets, that there's a whole planet of humans? No, no, no. What I believe is what's in front 
front of me because mm-hmm. robots are inherently logical beings. And so Judy begins to refute all of this and begins to coordinate with the other robots and begins to spread his ideology mm-hmm. through them in a type of robot cult. Interesting. Yeah. A little bit more alarming. So at this point, Cutie has become so deluded that he simply takes Donovan and Powell and locks them up in the space station and says, uh, don't worry, you'll be well taken care of because you have served the master well. But I'm beginning to believe that your time to serve the master is coming to an end. Ominous, ominous. <laughs> they they try a number of things, given that he's an inherently logical being. They try to sit down and logic it out, find out what this anomaly is with the three laws, try to reason with him, show them the book. They take Cutie into a room and they actually assemble another robot to prove to him mm. we created robots, to which Cutie responds, you didn't create anything. You just took pieces that were shipped here from somewhere and put them together. You simply followed instructions. It was simple. You didn't really do anything. And the the men remark that robots are inherently factual creatures, but facts are determined by the inputs that one is able to observe and that Cutie is only intaking the inputs that serve him. Mm. I made a note that it's it's often like debate, you know, when, when you're in, in a debate with someone and they keep a lot of whataboutism, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of this, that, and the other, a lot of choosing to ignore critical points, relying on only other points to essentially build a straw man. In any case, it's a very human thing to do. It, well, indeed, isn't it? <laughs> so Cutie stops obeying Donovan and Powell and locks them in the officer's room, which makes them worried because an electron storm is brewing, which if the beams are set off course by this electron storm, then it could destroy uh, hundreds of square miles on the Earth's surface, uh, mm. receiving this, uh, this solar radiation in such a concentrated beam. So they are unfortunately locked in the officer's room throughout the storm, assuming that something horrible has happened on Earth and that their lives are essentially over now. They're going to be put in prison because they, they failed in their mission. However, after the storm, they discovered that Cutie and the other robots held the beam steady. They were following the three laws all along. Cutie created a reason for himself to maintain control of the beams, knowing that he could hold them steadier than Donovan and Powell and thus save the lives of people. on. And so in, in that way, you see how, how these problems can be logicked mm-hmm. out if you simply rules of robotics. So so interesting situation there. And and what ends up happening is Donovan and Powell discuss, well, he held it perfectly. Our job was to see if he could operate independently on his own without human oversight. And he can, even if he is completely deluded into thinking that this machine is a god, what's the harm? So they get in their ship. When the, the ship arrives to swap them out with their replacements, they get in the in the replacement ship, they head back down to Earth. And that's that. That's the end of that uh, of reason. Of, yeah, that, that mythology. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, really fun one. And so begins the next anthology, which yet again deals with Donovan and Powell. I love Donovan and Powell. They're, they're probably my two of my favorite characters in the whole uh, the whole series. You're used to them for quite a bit. Yeah, it seems like it. This is the, the last one, actually, that it directly deals with Donovan and Powell. So savor it. Okay. <laughs> this chapter is called Catch That Rabbit, and it discusses Donovan and Powell testing a new type of robot, a very advanced type robot. And again, I don't quote me on this. I apologize if I'm incorrect, but I'm pretty sure this is the one where they specified that it's taking place in the year 2021, which I thought was quite funny. That is pretty funny. But their job is to test a new type of robot called a multiple robot, where there is one main robot and then six subsidiary robots. And they are equated to how we are the main robot and each of our fingers can be seen as a subsidiary robot, all parts of a whole, almost like a a swarm. Okay, a hive. Precisely. Precisely. Thank you. (laughs) Testing the new multiple robot named Dave. It's DV something is the robot.
robot code. So they call it Dave and they need it to help mine ore at an asteroid mining station. So they're at the asteroid mining station. Things seem, seem to be going well. He's able to function. However, they start to realize that when they're not watching Dave, he and the other robots do not produce any ore. But when they are watched, they function perfectly. Mm. That is seen as a little bit sinister. Yet again, Donovan presses that this is something very sinister going mm. on. And Powell keeps hitting back with you and your crazy assertions. You know, you need to go back to school. You need to, I should speak to you in gibberish, like baby language, because that's what you would understand. And a lot of back and forth, a lot of banter. That's funny. They're fun. <laughs> They're fun. I love it. In any case, they use video technology. I think it's called like video disc or something like that. But it's, it, oh boy. yeah, I, I pictured something like what the Wicked Witch uses in The Wizard of Oz to spy on Dorothy. You know, I think ah. used, anyway, they use basically a crystal ball to watch Dave. And they sometimes see that he and his subsidiaries stop working and do what appears as a military march together, mm. like military formations. And Donovan particularly notes that's a military formation. This is sinister. Something bad is happening. And Powell dismisses it, says, we need to stick to logic here. Are you even a scientist? What are you talking about? They try to create an emergency in order to see how Dave responds by caving in a section of the mine. So they they get in their gear and they go off to do this and they take a detonator. And when they use the detonator to get the attention of the marching robots, they accidentally create a cave in and now they're trapped. Good. Good job, guys. Yeah. Out in space, on these asteroids with yet again only six hours worth of air. Of course. <laughs> and their only hope for survival are these robots which are malfunctioning. And, and that's why I said it, it kind of reminded me of Luminous Dead in that way. A very similar like suspense. Mm, like the ticking clock too. Exactly, exactly. In response, Donovan and Powell are, are almost at the point of resigning themselves to death. They at this point have been through so much, so so much of this nonsense, you know, yeah. that all they want, all either of them wants a vacation and a good life on Earth. They, they don't necessarily want the life of US robotics anymore. And it, it's noted as well that failure in any of these situations is not really an option because they quote the US robotics' informal motto, which is no uh, US robotics it makes the same mistake twice because they're fired the first time. Seems a little bit sinister. Yeah, so they, so they had to get this done. Eventually, Powell has, the, has this uh, idea and sticks his head out of like this tiny opening where he can see Dave and his subsidiaries off in the distance doing their march, but still too far away for them and their presence to snap the robots out of it. And what Dave does is he takes the detonator and throws it at one of Dave's subsidiaries in order to get his attention, which destroys the subsidiary. It, it explodes. I always understood detonators to be the button that makes the explosion happen. But in this case, yeah. I, I don't know, future <laughs> technology, whatever. Fair. We'll go with it. It explodes the robot that snaps Dave and all his subsidiaries out of the march. And they realize after being freed that Dave was simply overwhelmed by having six subsidiary robots to transmit instructions to in an emergency and the marching order was Dave essentially twiddling his fingers. I was gonna say did they ever try giving Dave like I don't know television (laughs) (laughs) something to do with the with its downtime. That's it that's it yeah they solve the problem they get out they have successfully tested the robot yet another mission complete and it is noted that after this one they both get like a six-week vacation or something like that so (laughs) Go them, go Powell and Donovan, right? But do they retire after that, I guess is my question. Nope. No, they do not. They do not. You you never retire when you work for US Robotics. They get 
a nice long vacation. And then that's that. Then Dr. Calvin, they finished the interview until our interviewer later on bumps into Dr. Calvin again when she is clearing at her office at uh, US Robotics just due to retirement. She's had a very long and illustrious career and says, say, Dr. Calvin, the information you've given me is fantastic. And it's it's great history of robotics and of the positronic brain, but it doesn't really tell me much about you or about robotics in the modern world. You know, do you have any more stories that pertain directly to you and your experience? And so she transitions to telling more stories that involve herself. And this is kind of when we get into the more, it's definitely squarely in the second half of the book, but it's also now looking at how these stories impact the modern robotics world. And and the, the last chapter indeed deals with the, the world as a whole. So the next anthology is called Liar about a mind reading robot mm. that had been built uh, that she herself directly worked on. And interestingly, Dr. Calvin is one of the characters uh, in this flashback as it's more pertinent to her. So the mind reading robot is called Herbie. Herbie causes some trouble around the office at US Robotics when it becomes known that he is a mind reader. One young hotshot technician named Milton Ash is carrying Herbie from an assembly line, I'm assuming somewhere, to a storage facility when suddenly he he realizes that he's having a conversation with Herbie without either of them speaking. And so it is realized that Herbie can read minds and thereby is one of the more dangerous robots that are out there. And this project has to be kept very, very hush-hush because it can read minds and the experts at US Robotics can't fully control this phenomena yet. Is it explained how it's reading minds? Nope. Or is it just kind of like, eh, future technology, hand wave? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's it, it kind of doesn't. It's just future technology, which is interesting because they do make a point of trying to science out or rationalize out a lot of the technologies. But this one, they don't. You can just read minds. Fair enough. <laughs> it causes some problems within the office with some members of the staff going to the robot to find out things that work in their personal benefit or to their detriment, as we will find. Mm. So Dr. Calvin goes to Herbie to ask about Milton Ash. And it is revealed that Dr. Calvin, who is at this point, I think 40 or 41, is in love with Milton Ash for his his youth and his vitality. And it talks about how she saw him giving a tour to a pretty younger woman who was touring the facilities somewhat earlier. Dr. Calvin expresses doubts at that, says, oh, why, why would he want me, you know, an older woman when there's this beautiful young thing and Herbie says because of course he's in love with you that younger woman was his cousin and do you really think that the scientist the technician Milton Ash would just be looking for some hair and a, a pair of eyes no he wants a beautiful brain <laughs> again just getting back to like the 50s language it's, it's, yeah. all, it's all written in a lot of uh, 50s slang by the way the whole book it's a lot of G's and gollies <laughs> and stuff like that it's very fun that's funny he tells her that Milton Ash is in love with her essentially and she leaves uh overjoyed. Meanwhile, two other members of the team, director Alfred Lanning, who is established within US. He's been there for a long, long time, so much so that some of his subordinates think of his reasoning as outdated and think of him as a little bit stubborn and huffy. And one of those subordinates, Peter Bogert, goes to Herbie to ask about Alfred Lanning and whether or not he will be retiring anytime soon. Herbie immediately responds that he is already retired. 
He's already sent in his uh, his resignation, and the position of new director is falling to Bogart, the mathematician. So Bogart is overjoyed. So is Dr. Calvin, and they go off and do their things. Bogart spends the entire night in his office studying, working very, very hard with his new enthusiasm. Dr. Calvin, very, hmm, how to put this, within the context of the times in which this book was written, begins coming to work wearing much more and more makeup, noticeably, uh, clearly trying to get the attention of the men in the office. Again, of keeping in mind that the book was written in the 40s. Yeah. <laughs> Bogart, having stayed up all night, confronts Lanning about this, and Calvin actually goes to talk to Ash as well. Ash, however, at this point, reveals that just in a casual conversation, before she can say anything about her feelings, reveals that he's getting married. And he is getting married to the blonde woman who they talked earlier. So I don't know if I mentioned she has blonde hair, doesn't matter. And (laughs) confirms that she is not, in fact, his cousin. And Calvin is devastated and realized that Herbie was lying. And Bogart realizes that Lanning has not resigned, makes a complete fool out of himself saying you know I'm the new director now you're a lame duck I've got all the power you're on your way out so they all (laughs) confront Herbie and it is revealed that Herbie in order to not violate the first law that you should not hurt humans was protecting Mm -hmm. them by lying to them to not hurt their feelings Mm, the little white lie exactly exactly so Dr. Calvin tells Herbie to tell Bogart the truth but Kirby is caught in a paradox in which lying will hurt Bogart's feelings and telling the truth will also hurt his feelings, both of which violating the first law. And so he collapses into a pile of scrap metals and is essentially killed oh. as a result of the paradox. And that's the end of that chapter. But a bit of a bummer for Herbie. I guess a bit of a bummer for everyone involved, really. I mean, yeah. Dr. Calvin, you know, Bogart, who isn't himself a particularly sympathetic character, but you know, just a shame all around. Yeah, it raises an interesting question because that, that occurred to me while you were like telling the story about like what what constitutes harm Mm -hmm. to a robot Mm -hmm. because that was sort of my question was like oh is it able to lie because emotional harm like doesn't count as harm Mm -hmm. in like their sort of system Mm -hmm. but it sounds like it's actually the opposite Mm -hmm. that it was lying in order to prevent emotional harm exactly which also kind of caused emotional harm but well it did and hence paradox right you know that it was the lie was only preventing the harm while the humans did not know that it was a lie and as soon as they figured it out well then yeah. you know paradox and perhaps now you can kind of somewhat see what i mean about how robots and the positronic brain develops and gets more and more advanced and grows mm-hmm. and then we move on to a very interesting one called little lost robot and this chapter is the one that i've mentioned will smith's irobot film is vaguely based off of it begins with dr calvin and mathematician bogart being brought to a hyperbase, which is a space base that is very far away, where a robot named Nestor 10 has been lost. This base is run by the military. It's not specified which military. It's, it's When I was reading it, I just essentially assumed the US military, but it is later on revealed that the US does not exist in the iteration that we know it today. Okay. I'll expand on that later, but all you need to know is that it is the entire station and section around the station is controlled by the military it's restricted personnel only. They are conducting some sort of testing or mining or something there of that sort. But because of the nature of the work of the mining that needs to be done, they have had modifications made to the robots who are working there. And this is revealed to be top secret. Mathematician Bogart is revealed 
to be aware of this, but Dr. Calvin is not. And so she is brought up to speed with the fact that these robots, including the one who has gone missing, have a modified first law. Dr. Calvin, rightly, throws her hands up and, and says, you did what? Like, <laughs> why on earth would you do this? And goes right into this could lead to catastrophe. This could lead to the end of humanity. She explains that the, the first law is the only thing keeping the robot ego in check and that without it, robots would come to the logical conclusion that robots are the superior beings to humans and therefore robots should not be in indentured servitude to humans. So Dr. Calvin becomes very, very alarmed. We learn that the Nestor One robot, through checking all of the security information on this station, has not left. It is still on the station somewhere, as well as a shipment of 62 other identical robots who, because they are being used by the military and because they are illegally modified to have a weakened first law, they have no serial numbers. So there's no way to tell them all apart. There are 62 of them that were delivered. It seems less than ideal. It does. It seems very much less than ideal. There are 62 of them that have been delivered. There are suddenly, when they count them, 63, and they have no way of telling which one is the anomaly. That's why Dr. Calvin and mathematician Bogart have been brought station. They needed to bring in the experts to solve this problem. That triggers like a sense memory of watching the movie. Because I think there's a scene based on that in the movie oh, really? where they're like looking for the robots in like a warehouse or whatever. Oh, that's cool. With other identical robots. I just had that like image in my head. I was going to say, it's already more than I remember. <laughs> a worker at the station who is revealed to be named uh, Gerald Black explains that he was the last person to have contact with this Nestor 10 robot that disappeared and explains that in his last interaction, he got quite frustrated with this robot and at one point told him to go lose himself along with another number of profanities. And so as a result, it is revealed that that is why the robot went into this room of 62 others and got entangled with them. And so Dr. Calvin devises a number of logical experiments, which will reveal which robot is Nestor 10. They interview many of them. Some of the robots exhibit interesting responses, which are not necessarily fully in line with the three laws, which definitely alarms Dr. Calvin and Dr. Calvin. These are the unaltered robots, right? That's right. And it's also revealed that when she asks them, I can't remember the exact questions, and they respond in ways that could not be predicted by the three laws, she asks why that is if these are someone else's ideas and the robot says, yes, it, it was one of us, but I don't know who. So all to say these experiments are a failure. Then it is revealed that Nestor 10, the one who we are looking for, has advanced knowledge of physics because it had been brought to the base earlier and it had learned some things about different uh, gamma ray fields that it had to avoid when it was working, whereas the other robots do not. So she devises an experiment in which the robot Nestor 10 is caught uh, in a trap of superior knowledge, which reveals uh, that he is the robot in question. And as Dr. Calvin notes, his superiority cap. Uh, essentially, it was an experiment in which Calvin tells the, all the robots that she's going to run another experiment where they're going to have a person who is in danger. And between the robots and the person is going to be a gamma ray field, which Bogart will tell the robots kills them instantly. So it would be pointless for them to 
to try to save the person. The logic being they could step forward to try to save the person, but they would be killed by the gamma ray radiation before being able to do so, thus robbing them of a potential chance to prevent harm happening to a human in the future. So their instinct would be not to step forward. However, understanding that the uh, Nestor 10 that they're trying to capture has an advanced knowledge of physics and can tell the difference visually between gamma ray radiation and just regular UV radiation, which is what they actually use. So when the experiment runs, for the record, I should also note that Dr. Calvin insists on being the subject of this experiment. And when the experiment begins and Dr. Calvin is put in danger, none of the robots move except for one who slightly lurches forward. And then Dr. Calvin, recognizing that this is the robot that is the one that they're looking for, who has slipped up, asks all the robots to leave. Nestor 10 outstretches his arms and charges towards Dr. Calvin to kill her, clearly exhibiting signs of a robot that is stuck in a paradox, that is breaking, that thinks it to be superior, that is trying to be lost, that is simply trying to follow orders. It charges at her, pins her to the ground, and then Gerald Black throws the robot off. Dr. Calvin is fine. Case closed. Interesting. Indeed, indeed. And then we move on to the final three chapters, which are kind of the the conclusion. There's a marked difference here in kind of the tone and, and the content of the stories. So now the next anthology is called Escape, and it begins with uh, officials, uh, the CEO, etc., of U.S. Robotics and Mechanical Man, discussing a proposition that they've gotten from another company, a competitor who doesn't have their patents, called Consolidated. Both U.S. Robotics and Consolidated, as well as many other robotics companies in the world, are trying to build a warp drive, essentially, uh, a ship that can travel faster than the speed of light. And they use the instructions from this other company called Consolidated, and they feed it into a gigantic robot, which is essentially just one ginormous positronic brain called the brain. Try to have them make some sense of it. And it's also explained that Consolidated did the same thing with theirs. They fed in all of this information to their version of the brain, and it broke. Their brain was not able to compute it, and it's theorized that it's largely because there must have been some sort of a paradox in the instructions or some sort of a mention of harm or death to humans, which caused the robot to break down. So they feed this information into the brain, and as the brain is figuring out how to build this ship, Dr. Calvin tells him that they don't mind if humans are harmed or even may die. This is to calm the brain and avoid what happened with the other brain. Because this is an interstellar jump, the humans temporarily cease to exist. So uh, essentially, the brain gets authorization from the company, from the officials, to build this ship. Mm-hmm. He, he figured it out. Now he wants control of other robots to build this ship. Mm-hmm. They grant it. He begins to build this ship. By the time it's finished, about two months later, it's glorious. A fast building process. Very fast. Well, <laughs> we've got robots operating a hive, yeah. I guess. It's sleek. It's white. Not not an angle in the thing. It's all curved wall, curved everything, furniture built into the sides. Very neat. They decide, okay, we have this ship built. We have to test it. We need to bring in the best testers that we have. So Donovan and Powell, of yeah. course. <laughs> of course. A little bit grouchy about it. That they're being used in this very, very experimental thing where they might come to harm. I was going to say. They ask the director if they can go in and check it out. The director says, yeah, why not? If it's authorized to end anyone is authorized to you go on in check it out so they do they go in the door closes they begin walking around they find the cockpit and they see there's just this big beautiful bay window that goes all the way around allows them to see the the outside surroundings there's only a single dial on the entire ship it's just a glass dial with a with a needle very old school and it reads parsecs and it's got zero to one million essentially as soon as the gentlemen are on the ship they deduce that this ship will never fly it cannot work there's not a motor here 
So they go back to the door so that they can report it to the people who are outside that this thing ain't going to fly. And when they get there, the door is gone. So they walk back to the cockpit and all they see outside the bay window at this point are stars. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Dr. Susan Calvin goes to the brain and says, what the heck did you do? By the way, I should add that the reason why U.S. robotics is brain works, whereas other companies don't, is because U.S. robotics brain has a personality, which is a patented thing. I can't remember the logic they gave it, but all you need to know is the personality of this brain is a child. Okay. Use a lot of childish expressions like yippee, and it's revealed that the brain says the two men were, were on the ship. We were all ready to go, so I just sent them. And Dr. Calvin says, oh, did you not think about food or yada, yada, yada? And the brain says, no, 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 they, they have enough food. It was revealed that back on the ship, Powell and Donovan were wandering around trying to find some food because they've realized that this ship essentially isn't designed for them to fly it. It's designed for someone else to fly it. So feeling powerless, they do what they do best and try to find some food. The only food that they can find in the entire ship, which suddenly appears, one of the walls disappears into a cupboard and then there's food, is canned beans and milk. That's the only thing on the ship. They have some canned beans and milk. They also discover that there are no showers on the ship. That's going to be great. Going to be great. They experience the hyperspace jump very suddenly out of nowhere. They hear a slow rumbling of the entire ship and then force. Essentially, they experience death. They hear choirs of angels. They hear people yelling at other people to line up. And it is implied that these are the lines to get into hell. I think it was Donovan who experienced a lecture on the various ways in which they were going to be tortured now that they had entered hell. And then as quickly as it all began, it ended and they were brought back. And Powell turns to Donovan and says, were you dead? And Donovan says, I think so. And then Powell says, are we alive now or are we in somewhere else? Donovan says, I feel alive. And it is revealed that in order to facilitate the light speed jump, all of that matter had to be destroyed and then reconstructed. Mm. So they did die, essentially causing harm to humans. So the brain brings them back to Earth eventually. And it's it's noted that as soon as the ship gets back to Earth, Donovan stumbles out and plants a loud and audible kiss on the <laughs> on the uh, the concrete floor. And Dr. Calvin realizes that essentially their experiences were her fault because she told the brain not to worry about death and not to worry about harming humans. And because of the brain's childlike character, the brain became a bit of a practical joker in order to cope with the fact that he would be killing the humans, even if only temporarily, hence the lack of showers, hence the beans and milk. Yeah. That one's probably my favorite of the stories. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Does the brain have a name? It does not. It's just the brain. It's just the brain. Okay. Interesting. And now into the last two stories, which are are linked. It's it's essentially just telling one long story. Mm -hmm. So the next story is called Evidence, and it chronicles two men who are running for a mayoral office. It's not indicated which city but somewhere within the continental U.S. Their names are Francis Quinn and Stephen Byerly. And Quinn approaches some of the members of U.S. robotics, in particular Calvin and Bogart, to explain that he believes that Byerly is a robot who is running for office. And he explains this because he has never seen the man eat or sleep, so he must be a robot. And he, he clarifies by saying, it's not that it's not often, it's literally never. No one has ever seen him eat or sleep. So he enlists Calvin. Calvin and Bogart to prove that he is a robot. But Calvin acknowledges that if Byerly follows the three laws, then he could be a robot or he could simply be a very good man because the three laws are not only foundational to robot behavior, but are also kind of entrenched unofficially within the ethical codes of many societies and cultures the world over, right? Quinn has several men investigate Byerly and cannot come up with concrete evidence 
he eventually unable to come up with concrete evidence leaks the news that he thinks he's a robot and the public is riled up into a frenzy whether or not it's proven doesn't matter the public mm. is at this point it's too late for Byerly not to be confirmed as the nominee from his party which is they, they don't get into it but uh, <laughs> they don't name which party they don't name names but from his party he becomes the candidate and indeed there's a bit of a stir around the election at this point because no one really knows it's it's tense it's weird police are constantly showing up to Byerly's house now to do investigations of the house to do searches one police officer demands that he be allowed to search not only his house but Byerly's body himself give him an x-ray Byerly says no it's a violation of my human rights police officer says you're a pretty clever lawyer and storms off uh, while noting that he took a picture with his uh, x-ray camera from within his jacket but strangely that thread is never really pulled after that in any case Byerly ultimately near the end of the campaign he gives a speech from a balcony which his campaign manager likens to the dictators of old Europe just a regular campaign speech only halfway through the speech he sees a disgruntled man pushing through the crowd to get to the front of the crowd and a police officer chasing after him Byerly waves off the police officer and beckons the man up on the stage and then says to him what's what's your quarrel friend and the the man shouts you know hit me hit me if you can you can't hit me there's no way that a robot can hit me he says I'm not going to hit you I have no reason to hit you the guy says because you're a robot because you're a filthy stinking dirty blah 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 yeah starts throwing around some some powerful language so then Byerly hits hard over the jaw knocks him over uh picks him up and then completes his speech and it was noted that he was giving his speech but no one was really listening at that point it was more of the shock and awe of what they had just experienced yeah, i was gonna say <laughs> a politician punches someone in the middle of a speech indeed, the rest indeed. of the speech probably is gonna be a bit odd well, well that's it that's it and in addition to the the high drama of the punch you know he is proven that he is not a robot i should say i feel like he could have just like i don't know brought a hot dog <laughs> well that's it he refuses vehemently to to eat throughout and then when eventually he is made to eat something in front of dr calvin dr calvin hands him an apple he eats a bite of it and puts it away and then after that they deduce that that's not good enough to prove that he's not a robot because yeah. his makeup is so deceiving also lifelike that if someone were to go to all the trouble of creating a synthetic humanoid robot which by the way is what they call him and that's why i was hesitant to call robbie a humanoid robot yeah if he were a humanoid robot and someone had gone to all the trouble of making him in such detail they would have recognized the need for some sort of a a demonstration of sustenance for exactly such an occasion as this so they, Mm -hmm. they determined that just eating isn't enough so instead he had to break one of the three laws of robotics and he seemingly did however later calvin visits him one more time it's noted that this is after he's won the election he becomes the mayor while they're discussing and saying that i was surprised blah 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 blah. i hope that you run for coordinator one day and that's expanded upon in the next chapter stephen byerly explains quinn's reasoning essentially he explains that quinn had thought that the old man who is often with byerly was actually the original stephen byerly who in his youth was injured in a motorcycle accident and instead created this synthetic version of himself to be the man who he wanted to be okay it is also alluded to at the end that that might in fact be the case because Stephen Byerly, the man slash potential robot sitting in front of Dr. Calvin, explains that it would not be a violation of the first law if the man whom he was punching was also a robot. Oh. And then the chapter ends. Interesting. And then you move on to Dr. Calvin. 
Calvin's final story, which is the evitable conflict. Note evitable. As, as opposed to inevitable. Precisely. So in her final story, Calvin works once again with Byerly, who has now become the world coordinator. And this is where some interesting world building comes in. You learn that the world is no longer represented by nation states. Mm-hmm. The humanity has evolved somewhat beyond nation states into uh, a series of regions, which all coordinate with one another. Each region has a coordinator, and then there is a world coordinator who coordinates amongst the regions, and that's Byerly's current position. And it is explained that there are several regions. The richest and most powerful region is the northern region, which consists of the US, Canada, all of the United Kingdom, and Ireland, all of the former USSR. It's a big region. And all of Scandinavia. Oh, wow. And also Australia and New Zealand. Okay. So, yes, that is the northern region. That is the most powerful region. Each region has a capital. Their capital is, coincidentally, Ottawa. Oh, that's fun. Isn't it? Isn't that pleasant? That's the northern region. There is the southern region, which is everything in South America from the north of Argentina all the way to the Rio Grande. Oh, sorry. No, that's not southern region. I apologize. That's the tropics region, as well as essentially all of sub-Saharan Africa. Their capital city is a new city that was built called Capital City, somewhere in Nigeria. There is the eastern region, which is essentially all of East Asia, China, Japan, Korea, Tibet, Indonesia, the entire, as it was known at the time, Indochina region. So Vietnam, Thailand, etc. The capital of which is in Shanghai. One more, there's the European region, which controls the southern tip of South America. I know, a little counterintuitive based on their name. Yeah. (laughs) As well as all of Europe, essentially the lands that were inhabited by the Roman Empire um, is an easy way to, the entire Mediterranean. Okay. That's the fun world building that I wanted to do. Yeah, that is interesting. Isn't it? Isn't it? And it's explained that regionalizing in this way brought about quite a golden age in human civilization. And that while the North is currently dominant, there are other factions which are are rising power. So Mm -hmm. the the tropics region holding most of the world's resources and a ton of the world's land, but not a lot of the population versus the Asian region, which controlled about 50% of the world's population. All that versus the the Northern region, which is the leading region with Europe as kind of a subsidiary. And so kind of breaking down along sort of lines that we would recognize uh, in terms of like sort of economic power. Precisely. But with a more optimistic view, perhaps. It reminded quite a bit of Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. All that groundwork laid in her final story, Calvin is meeting with Byerly in his office once again. Now as world coordinator, several years later, this is the year 2052. The global economy is being stabilized and is run by robots called machine, which are giant robots that essentially calculate the most efficient outcome economically for a country and does exactly that. It it is implied that these machines are able to perfectly balance supply and demand, not just goods and services, Mm -hmm. but also of labor. There is no more unemployment. No one wants for anything, Mm -hmm. essentially, in this world because the machines run the economy flawlessly. Interesting. Indeed. Except recently, it hasn't been flawless. Byerly observes that there are some unusual errors occurring, like over and under production in certain economic regions. His advisors tell him that the machines don't make errors because they follow the first law. So he enlists Calvin's help to figure out what's wrong. Eventually, Calvin realizes that all of the companies and people who have been hurt by the machine's errors are related to an organization called the Society for Humanity, which is very anti-machine, almost a religious fundamentalist group, which 
which they're essentially Luddites. In each of the instances where a problem with production has occurred, it has been linked directly to one of these Luddites, one of these Society for Humanity members making a mistake and then thereafter being stripped of their position, essentially. So it was recognized that the machines understand that their presence is extremely beneficial to humanity. And so they need to take care of any threats to their own existence. They're following the first law and trying to get the most good, which means that ensuring that they could maintain control of the economy. So essentially, Mm. these machines were acting within the bounds of the first three laws when they're making these mistakes, because these mistakes were made in order to have the humans who are responsible for them removed so as to avoid any challenge to robot supremacy, because that is Mm. in the best interest of humanity. It was discussed between the reporter and Dr. Calvin at the very end here that it was both horrifying and beautiful, quite Mm. reassuring, but also quite grotesque that humans are no longer in control of what their society is going to look like. That Mm -hmm. uh, if the robots deem it in the human's best interest, they will slowly revert them back to an agrarian style society. You know, they will make whatever changes are the best for humanity, whether humanity knows it or likes it. Dr. Calvin concludes to the reporter that that's all she can tell him. She sums it up by saying she witnessed the evolution of robots from the time they couldn't speak to the time when they stand between mankind and destruction. She says goodbye and eventually dies at 82 years old, which is the last line of the book. And there you have it. I, Robot. Interesting. Thank you for your telling. Oh, my pleasure. This was so much fun. I know how you do this every week, though. (laughs) Hold that thought. The kitty is yelling at me. I'm just going to look. Okay. Yes. Bring us the kitty. Come on, Bubba. For those of you at home, we've just been joined by our third host. That's right. That's exactly right. So that's iRobot. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Oh my God. So much fun. Yeah. It sounds like it was a very interesting book to read. And it sounds like it was told like in an interesting way, like the different stories, the sort of recurring characters, like Mm -hmm. it sounds really Mm -hmm. neat. It was really interestingly done. And I wasn't really expecting that from a book from the forties. You know, I wasn't really expecting it to be so refreshing. Yeah. Maybe for me, it's just because I personally don't read fiction very often. So this was refreshing in that sense. It was, it was easy to read, you know, it pulls you in, it really does, you know, but it was the anthology I thought was a really creative way of telling the story. I, again, for me, this was a story about the character development, the coming of age of robots within this world. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and, and kind of having an anthology wherein the robot is present as a character in all of the stories, of course, not the same robot, but kind mm-hmm. of the same robot or a spiritual successor to the last robot you know so so I really enjoyed it yeah and having read it where do you think the audience is sort of meant to land in terms of viewing robots at least in this world and viewing like their sort of takeover well that's just it that's just it it really was they they also mentioned in the book I, I think it was in Liar the the one about the robot who reads minds someone in that story describes that human Humanity won't go out with a bang, but with a whimper or with a whisper whatever the expression is. And indeed, that's I found was kind of echoed throughout the rise of the machines and the rise of the robots throughout the entire book. Although there were some homicidal slash domineering tendencies exhibited by some of the robots that went screwy, a majority of the robots and in a majority of the cases, the robots even that did go screwy could be logicked out and fix it and figure out that it was probably due to human error and and correct Mm -hmm. it. In a way, I think that the book presents the robots 
as, sure, easy to think of them as an existential threat, but clearly they aren't. And that's kind of encapsulated in the dialogue between Donovan and Powell, whereas Donovan's always like, this is sinister. Powell says, okay, but why are they marching in an army formation? There must be some reason behind it. Yeah. That kind of tempers your fear of the robots. But then, in the end, they do take over the world, right? But with a whisper, not with a bang. Like, I feel like we're, and this is maybe indicative of the culture, at least, that like we grew up in. Mm. I feel like the version of sort of robot apocalypse that like I saw was, you know, the Terminator. Mm -hmm and the matrix mm-hmm. of like the machines taking over with evil intent or I don't know if you can describe a robot as evil mm-hmm. but regardless taking over with like intent to wipe out humanity or in the case of the matrix like using humanity as a power source yes. mm-hmm. and it's like this very sort of sinister like easy Indeed. evil force yeah. for the characters to fight against whereas in iRobot it's much more yeah like you said it, it's a wimp it's about how the sort of laws that we gave the robots like to protect humanity end up kind of turning against us yeah. because humans are bad at taking care of ourselves bingo. essentially bingo <laughs> that's exact that's exactly the takeaway and and that kind of loops back to as well the fact that dr calvin repeatedly explains that she prefers robots that she does think of them as the superior being and in this mm-hmm. case you know humanity created something which didn't destroy them but which they they certainly lost control of. But in an almost a very peaceful way. Exactly right. Exactly right. No no malice at all in the takeover, but there was a takeover and there had to be for the human's own good, right? And it's it's interesting to me too that like it's sort of at least as you were telling it, the story seems to or the stories seem to produce this question of like, what is humanity? What is mm-hmm. robot? At what point does robot begin to exhibit human traits? Mm-hmm. And again, maybe this is me reading into it a little bit of like the servitude of robots mm-hmm. and I don't know mm-hmm. if it goes into the morality of that at all but it's interesting to me that even as the robots gain control mm-hmm. it's still in service to humans mm-hmm. indeed they do actually touch on that a little bit not so directly but I would like to think that the author was trying to make some sort of a statement or indicate some sort of moral I don't know trying to produce some sort of moral what's the word I'm looking for, like an upsetness when he uses the word slave-like to describe Mm -hmm. their behavior. It's a a powerful word that kind of sticks with you and evokes the, as you said, the the, the nature of the servitude. And it's it's interesting and not not to get too real on our entertainment podcast. And and obviously, like this is a work of fiction. It's maybe not meant to be directly paralleling anything about real life. But even in sort of our current, again, I'm not a robotics expert, but even in our current sort of understanding of robotics and what they can do, there's this sort of sense that they can take over like the menial tasks, like the mm-hmm. the jobs like on assembly lines, for example, that people don't want to do or that you would regularly hire people like at sort of low wages, potentially exploitative conditions that mm-hmm. like those people no longer have to work in those scenarios. And now it's robots or like in the context of this story now it is robots doing that work if those robots have 
have the same potential in them as a human does? Is that any fairer mm-hmm. than... Well, there you have it. There you have it. I, I guess something else to consider is the, the nature of service, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it was essentially all but confirmed that Byerly is a robot who is now the world leader, right? The leader of the entire human society. His, his position is invariably, you know, a very privileged position among humans and in human society, but can also be viewed at its base as a position of public service mm-hmm. and therefore in line with the second law, you know, ob- obey their masters and and serve. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, yeah, it's a very like pure view of politicians, obviously, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in a very like optimistic, you know, utopian sort mm-hmm. of way. Yes, like a politician is meant to serve the people. Mm-hmm. And are we ever given any indication of like, does Byerly have free will or is he being controlled by someone or something else? Well, that's it. It's it's unclear. And I think that the entire book, in particular, the last few chapters deal with this issue of free will, mm-hmm. uh, not just with regards to Byerly, but with the brain, for example, mm-hmm. the brain decided, okay, yeah, they're on board. I'm just going to send them into hyperspace. That's reasonable. Is that an exhibition of free will? Or is that just the natural extension of the order given by Dr. Calvin and the experts at US Robotics to build the ship and test it, right? And then likewise, does Mr. Byerly have free will? Or is he just following up on his his orders to live a good life as the new Stephen Byerly while the old Stephen Byerly observes, you know, if that is the way. So I guess to answer your question directly, no, there is no direct confirmation that he has or does not have free will. But the entire half end of the book kind of deals with such an issue. I guess that's sort of the question. And like you said, like within these three laws of robotics that like obviously are things you would want to have probably in place in a robot. And you said about how it would be hard to test them against Byerly because like humans would probably mm-hmm. behave in a very similar way but obviously the difference again to go back to that question of servitude is that humans do have a choice to some degree like they they don't have that same ranked options where perhaps a robot would be more inclined to like sacrifice itself mm-hmm. for a human life whereas a human would be more free to make the choice to not indeed so very very interesting in that respect deals mm-hmm. with a lot of complicated themes I, and I wonder if the movie the Will Smith movie deals with these themes at all as well. I'm, I'm sure it does, right? Rel- relative humanity? I think it does. I think it has to do with that question of like free will and, and mm-hmm. servitude. I mean, I feel like that's maybe just the way that we think about things tends to come up more often when we mm-hmm. think about robots. And, and once we get into the sort of more humanoid types of robots, obviously, because like when I was saying about, you know, the jobs that people don't want to do, I had the thought of like Roombas and how like if you have a Roomba it's there to vacuum your floor rather than like paying a housekeeper to come vacuum mm-hmm. your floor but I don't think anyone would argue that we are taking advantage of a Roomba well that's just it right <laughs> and that's that's where this conversation begins right it's very interesting Dr. Calvin also mentions frequently throughout that by buying into this fear of robots as opposed to using your logic to deduce that robots cannot harm us that they must act within our best interest because of the three laws, you're giving into this this prejudice. And there is quite a bit of emphasis, just going back to your, your comment on servitude, there is quite a bit of an emphasis on people who buy into that fallacy that robots are not safe to be on Earth, that robots are not safe in general, that robots have ruined the economy. You are buying into that fallacy. She, she does touch on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting just the, like, the way that we see in the stories how the, I guess how the naming conventions change in the earlier ones where 
it seems like all of the robots are named and they're named very like cutesy things which again mm-hmm. is both sort of a a very human tendency i think to like personify but also kind of dehumanize in a way like it, it's clear that they're mm-hmm. not seen as humans in the mm-hmm. way that they're named like mm-hmm. like naming a cat bubbles exactly exactly like there's no thought to whether or not for example the robot would prefer to be referred to as cutie mm-hmm. and and then we get into nestor 10 and the brain that are just referred to as it sort of strips mm-hmm. away a little bit of that like individuality in a way or like a little more clinical yeah that tendency to like personify in a very like pet like way in a way that's again not necessarily more human it's just kind of going in a slightly different direction with it yeah yeah exactly exactly and then suddenly you have robots like Stephen Byerly mm-hmm. right you know the, the the last potential robot of the of the series oh then again there is the machine yes. as well just being referred to as the machine yeah, yeah so totally totally see what you're saying it, it is interesting isn't it all in all I, I would have to say very fun to read I felt very satisfied by the end what a, what a walk what a walk a walk to remember one could say what a journey it definitely seems like it left a lot of questions like open to discussion and mm-hmm. interpretation which is always nice indeed isn't that the, the whole point of fiction right exactly. just to, to prompt question get your juices flowing make you wonder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and of course like we currently are, are in a very different state than Asimov perhaps expected <laughs> we would be although I think it's worth stating that I know there's a strong element to which it's believed that science fiction should not necessarily be looked at as like predicting the future but more about mm-hmm. writing about the person's present and right. like extrapolating from there so not necessarily about prediction but like it is always funny to see like oh yes 2021 in this world with these massively ahead of their times robots <laughs> that's it, that's it. And I think that's that's a good point that you make about how these stories science fiction should be seen as an extension of the time in which it was written I, I think if you read iRobot with that in mind it, it shines through quite a bit you you see a lot of influences of the 40s and 50s and of, of the post-war period yeah and it was it was a lot more I don't know if sympathetic is quite the right word but it was a lot more sympathetic towards the robots than I was expecting it to be indeed indeed me as well me as well but I'm pretty sure Asimov was a scientist himself I think so don't quote me on that so maybe that's why yeah in any case fun good one yes the great switcheroo yay we did it we did it we did the great switcheroo for the for our listeners that's what we were calling this the me read and Aaron interview yes and how was your how was your reading experience I mean I don't know how was it you tell me I had fun I think you did a great job yeah well thank you I appreciate that like I said if you let me I'll talk your ears off I mean (laughs) but anyway what are we reading next yeah I was thinking that we would return to Sean and McGuire wayward children series good and i don't know if you would rather read the next book in sort of chronological order or if you would rather read one of like the backstory ones Ooh, i see i I really have no preference okay i also don't really have a preference like either one would be interesting surprising (laughs) okay we'll we'll find out (laughs) well then if you've enjoyed listening and presumably you have since you made it all the way to the end please leave a rating a thumbs up a like or subscribe based on your respective podcast streaming platform of choice and you can reach us at brodaciousbookclub at gmail.com come and send us comments recommendations fan art you know fan art or whatever whatever we, we, fan fiction go, go ahead anything but, uh... <laughs> 
and and also for the record, the the Facebook page is popping off. So go ahead and like the Facebook page. Come like us on Facebook. Come like us on Twitter. Rodacious Book Club. Look us up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Matt Thomas, and you can reach me at msthomas95 on Twitter. And I'm Aaron Rockford. You can reach me at Pineapple Fury. And that is all, said Dr. Calvin, rising. I saw it from the beginning when the poor robots couldn't speak to the end, when they stand between mankind and destruction. I will see no more. My life is over. You will see what comes next. Oh, I guess we will see what comes next. I guess we will. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Thanks for being with us at our one year anniversary. Woo! Woo! (laughs) That's going to be fun, I'm sure, in the edit. You're welcome. You're welcome. Catch you next time. Catch you next time. (laughs) 